opposition claims that Jerusalem's Church of the Holy Sepulchre is built over the cave in which Jesus is said to have been buried. In July 2002, the church became the scene of ugly fighting between the monks who run it. You see, the conflict seemed to begin when a Coptic monk sitting on the rooftop decided to move his chair into the shade. And this took him to the part of the rooftop courtyard, courtyard looked after by the Ethiopian monks. And it turns out that the Ethiopian and Coptic monks have been arguing over the rooftop of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre for centuries. You see, in 1752, the Ottoman Sultan issued an edict declaring which parts of the church belonged to each of six Christian groups. The Latins, Greek Orthodox, Armenian Orthodox, Syrian Orthodox, Copts and Ethiopians. And despite the edict, conflict over the church remains. Now, the rooftop had been controlled by the Ethiopians, but they lost control to the Copts when it was hit by a disease epidemic in the 19th century. Then, in 1970, the Ethiopians regained control when the Coptic monks were absent for a short period. And they have been squatting there ever since, with at least one Ethiopian monk always remaining on the roof to assert their rights. And in response, a Coptic monk has been living on the roof also to maintain the claim of the Copts. And so we get to a Monday in July 2002 when the Coptic monk moves his chair into the shade. Harsh words lead to pushes, then shoves until an all-out brawl is going, including the throwing of chairs and iron bars. And at the end of the, end of the fight, 11 of the monks are injured, including one monk un unconscious in hospital and another with a broken arm. But the ultimate tragic irony of the situation of squabbling between devout Christians is that in some of his final words before Jesus was arrested and ultimately crucified and killed was a prayer for his followers, saying, Holy Father, protect them in your name that you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. So they may be one. Well, it seems that some people missed that memo. But Wendy's going to read us the whole prayer just now. Wendy. Our reading this morning comes from John chapter 17, verses 6 to 19. Jesus prays for his disciples. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you, for I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name the name you gave me, 
so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, so that scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so though so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Thank you, Wendy. One of the slightly unusual encouragements of this lockdown situation that we've been living in has been online prayer. When lockdown was first announced in March 2020, one of the first things the ministry team and I agreed to do was to bring worship online, but also to bring Friday prayers online as well. Previous to lockdown, we had a time of prayer in the church building every second Friday at 7.15 a.m., would meet, follow some liturgy, sing a wee bit and pray. And we got somewhere between 3 and 15 people coming. But since beginning Friday prayers online, we get around about 22 devices tuning in most Friday mornings at 7.15am. But more than the numbers, because naturally some of that increase in numbers is because folks can watch or listen to it on the move or in their jammies with a cup of coffee. But more than that is the fact that people quickly started texting me asking for prayer for certain people in their neighbourhoods or for certain situations. Now I don't think that listening into me praying for people is the only way to do prayer and the only way we should do prayer because I think that people getting together and joining in together in prayer is very powerful. However, there is equally something very powerful about hearing and almost overhearing someone praying for others. I read recently of a parent whose university-aged daughter had been going through a really difficult time adjusting to life at university and so had taken a break to come home and to rest and to get some help for her depression. The parent had mentioned this in passing at a meeting. And three weeks later, he got an unexpected phone call from someone who had been at that meeting, asking how his daughter was and telling him that they had 300 ministers praying for her. You see, it seems that even in our darkest moments, even if we've not regularly thought about faith or engaged with God, we seem to appreciate and value someone praying for us. And it's important that we continue to ask for prayer, but to be prayed for without asking, just because someone feels moved enough to pray for you, is all the more powerful. 
And often when I pray for folks on Friday mornings, they've never asked for the prayer. And it can be so powerful. And in some cases, simply life-changing. And this is what Jesus is doing in this passage. We are overhearing Jesus praying for his disciples and his followers. And what's more, we're really overhearing Jesus praying for us too, here and now. And he's praying for them and for us for a specific reason, which we'll put a pin in just now and come back to in a moment. come back to the purpose of Jesus' prayer in a minute. But in this overheard prayer, what is it that Jesus is praying for? Well, there's three things he's praying for his disciples, but I only want to look at one of those things today. So he prays for safety and protection for his followers. He prays for joy for them also. But the first thing that he prays for is unity. One of the things that Jesus is praying for is unity. In years gone by, people who study the Bible have used this passage to call for churches of different types to work together, something that we call working ecumenically. And that's definitely a helpful and a valid reading of this passage. The fact that we have any divisions of any kind in the Christian church is something that I think grieves God's heart. And certainly a great amount of good work has come out of the ecumenical movement. But I think that there's another reading of this passage, one that's maybe more deep and more challenging. You see, if we look at what Jesus is saying, there's an intimacy that moves Jesus' words towards this unity being more than just shared meetings, more than nominal working together of denominations, more than institutional and structural teamwork. It moves it to the kind of deep relationship of love that's shared between God the Father and God the Son. You see, Jesus says, Holy Father, protect them in your name that you've given me so that they may be one as we are one. Making comments on this passage, John Calvin, the great Christian thinker and pioneer of the Presbyterian Church, says this. He says, because it is not enough for men, and by which he means humanity, to agree in general. He adds the phrase, as we are one. And he says, our unity will be truly happy when it bears the image of God the Father and of Christ as wax takes the form of the seal impressed upon it. In a podcast I was listening to recently, the Bible thinker N.T. Wright explained this analogy. He said that when you put a wax seal on an envelope or to seal something, as you do that, you can't actually see the stamp, but you can see the imprint of the stamp on the wax. He says that the stamp is like God, who we can't see 
and the imprint of the stamp that we can see is like Jesus. And so Jesus shows us the God that we can't see. And so what Calvin is saying is that our unity will only be true unity when we as followers of Jesus also bear that image of God in us. So we are to bear the image of God. We are to reflect the image of God. But we've not been very good at that. The early parts of the Bible tell us that humans were made in the image of God. That when we, as a human race and as individuals, create and love and care and tend for our world, then we are bearing God's image. Or as Dr. Tim Mackey, another Bible thinker, says... When we do this, we actually become reflections of the creator into the world, which is the high purpose of humanity. But we're not very good at it. But the Bible claims that there was one man who was very good at it, who did it perfectly, and that man was Jesus. And Tamaki goes on to say that what this looked like to Jesus was courage, generosity, and self-giving love. He says the tender heart of Jesus that he showed to the sick and to the poor is a window into the very heart of God. So if Jesus is the definition of what it means to be truly human and to reflect God to the world, then the job of followers of Jesus is to walk that long winding road of becoming more and more like Jesus. And one of the most powerful ways we can do that is through unity with each other. And we find unity not necessarily by working out how to all have the same opinion or by making our views on theology, ethics or how the world should run so bland that we all agree, but by focusing on, striving towards and building on things that are good and the things that unite us. So things like how we can help the poor, how we can love our world more, how we can become more present with our communities and how we can end the cycles of violence that we end up in and how we can push against society's need to divide and segregate and classify. We work out our unity by focusing on our purpose, that thing that connects us rather than what our differences are or what tears us apart. As part of one of the most viewed TED Talks, the author and speaker Simon Sinek tells the story of the reason we don't know the name Samuel Pierpont Langley, yet we instinctively know who the Wright brothers, Orville and Wilbur, are and their achievement to be the first to build an aeroplane that could successfully fly. Samuel Pierpont Langley was seemingly armed with every ingredient for success in the race to become the first to fly. Langley was a professor at Harvard and senior officer at the Smithsonian. He was given a grant of $50,000 from the War Department, which is many million in today's dollars, and assembled a team of some of the best talent of the day. Furthermore, the press followed his every move as the nation closely followed his story. He 
He had all the ingredients that conventional wisdom would say bring success. But Langley was not the first to pilot an aeroplane and in fact gave up his aim to do it altogether when the Wright brothers beat him to it. The Wright brothers didn't have the equipping and support that Langley had, quite the contrary. There were no government grants for their endeavour or any other forms of external funding. They funded it out of their own earnings from their bicycle shop. No one on their team was regarded as being great, as being among the great minds of the day. In fact, no one on their team even had a college education. Yet, it was the less equipped, less noticed Wright brothers who were the first to take flight in human history. Not the better funded, more prominent Samuel Pierpont Langley. Now the reason wasn't luck, both the Wright brothers and Langley were highly motivated. Both had a strong work ethic. Both had keen scientific minds. They were pursuing exactly the same goal, but only the Wright brothers were able to inspire those around them and truly lead their team to develop a technology that would change the world. Only the Wright brothers started with why they were doing what they were doing. They wanted to be the first to fly, whereas Langley was really doing it for the money and the notoriety. Only the Wright brothers focused on what united them. And we know this because after the Wright brothers achieved flight, Langley's team disbanded. The Bible tells us that the purpose of humanity is to bear God's image, that image of self-giving love. And the stronger we focus on that and strive towards it, the more we will find ourselves in deeper and closer unity. Now remember, I wanted you to stick a pin in a thought about the purpose of Jesus' prayer. Well, you can take that pin out now. Why is Jesus praying for his disciples? What's the reason and the purpose behind Jesus' prayer? Well, just before Jesus prays for unity, he says, I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. Now remember that this is Jesus praying for his disciples for the last time. Jesus knows he's about to be betrayed, arrested, crucified, and killed. And he also knows that he will, after his resurrection, go back to heaven, which is basically God's space. And so he's leaving his followers in the world to carry on the work Jesus has done to be God's image in the world. But Jesus knows that the world is a hard place to be. And when he talks about the world, he's not really talking about the world of nature and this beautiful creation that we experience and that God wants us to look after. He's talking about the bits of the world that have chosen not to bear God's image. Those parts of our world that cause division, that subjugate women, that segregate humans based on gender, education level or colour of skin. And those parts of the world that place greater importance on prosperity than on people. And so he wants to pray to God that his followers, his disciples, will bear God's image to the world. That his followers will show that courage 
generosity and self-giving love to the world, that humanity will be a mirror to the God of love. And that's not some kind of ethereal, theoretical, pie-in-the-sky type of love. This means that as bearers of God's image to the world, it's our job to find ways in our everyday lives to intentionally create gender equality, to show to look for a way to show equity among people of different races, to speak words of love, kindness and compassion, and to support initiatives, projects and ideas in our community or our church that mirror God's compassion, courage and self-giving love. We have this calling so that we can live it out wherever we are, in unity, in courage and in joy. Over the last six weeks or so, we've been thinking about how we fit in. And we've basically been saying that we used to think in the church that you need to believe, then learn how to behave, and then you'll belong. But that doesn't actually seem to be the way that God works. Over this series, we've explored that the way that God works in humanity is that before we believe certain things, before we behave in a certain way, we belong to this community. As Jesus prays for his followers, and by extension he's praying for us, he's praying for us to bear God's image to the world, to mirror God to the world. And we do that by living a life of self-giving love, courage, compassion, grace and peace. And you know, the more you live that life, the more you explore the person of Jesus and how he radically changed the way the world works, the more you find yourself in unity with the other people who want to live this way. And the more you hopefully find that community among the church. And the more we find, not that you suddenly fit in, but you find that you fitted in all along. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you prayed for your disciples and still you pray for us. Your prayer for us is that we might learn how to love and serve you by loving and serving each other. So God, may we see the things you want us to do. May we love those you want us to love, however easy or difficult that is. May we know that you are always with us, looking on us not with judgment, but with love, encouraging us, challenging us, inspiring us to be all that you created us to be. Amen.